1: Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. We are very excited to have on the line with us our first guest today, Congressman Eric Burleson of Missouri's 7th Congressional District. He is a sixth generation Missourian with 20 years of private sector experience as an investment advisor and software consultant. Chuck and I always love it when our government officials have experience on the front of a paycheck, not just signing the back of it. So, Congressman, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks,
1: Sam and Chuck. It's great to be on. So Missouri spends
3: $338 million a year on illegal aliens. In 2021, 1,581 citizens of Missouri died from opiate, fentanyl overdoses. You just recently went to the border. Um, We're all border states now. What do you feel is the prescription to tighten that border up so we actually have operational control over our border?
2: Yeah, I was really grateful. Andy Biggs from Phoenix area, he led a delegation of us down. He's a real leader, um, the conservative movement, myself and Tim Burchett. And, you know, we as a conservative, I've always been in favor of building the wall, um, doing everything we can to secure the border. And and I could tell you, we need every bit of it. We need we need an above all approach. We need a wall. We need a we need a a. Um, barbed wire fence we need a third fence whatever it takes i think we need to do to secure the border and make it clear that if you do come then we're then you're likely to be arrested you're likely to spend time in jail and it it, it, basically what we need to do is eliminate the incentives to come and and add or increase the disincentives because That's what they're all doing. All of these immigrants are calculating the risk and the reward. And so right now for them, the calculation makes sense to to risk it and come to the United States. And we need to change that.
3: I think one thing that's important when our audience or liberals or the New York Times hear about us talk about the border and how it just needs to be, we need to have operational control of our own borders, that somehow... Republicans, members of the Freedom Caucus, are opposed to legal immigration, which is not the case. We're just saying we're a country, we have rules, and they need to be followed, and we can only assimilate X amount of people at a time. Is, is that a fair characterization of our position?
2: 100% fair. You know, I, I, I look in the eyes of people that are coming, and, and I have empathy for them, right? Like, they, they want the same freedoms and opportunities that we have, but when we establish a precedent that you can ignore our laws and ignore our rules, we'll guess, and then we're going to give you handout, which is literally what's happening. Like we're giving people across the border a, a, a warm night day, uh, three hot meals, snacks along the way, and we're giving them a you know a hot shower and then a, and a, a free health care, right? right? So if they've got any kind of ailment, they get free health care. This is not the precedent we want to set. To people that are coming to the united States
1: no our our governor here in Arizona is now chartering jets to fly them to their chosen destination it's essentially acting as a travel agent for the cartels for the last step of the journey
2: right, and we have i mean honestly if there's one thing that we're doing is we're we're boosting the cartels we're giving them they have full control over the border there's not a single person that crosses the southern border without permission of the cartels, but so you cannot tell me. That this is something that, you know, the, the United States, with which is the greatest country on the planet, can't accomplish, which is full control of the border. It, it, if the Cartels can do it. We can do it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> Congressman, one of the things you pointed out or Chuck, Chuck pointed out leading in is the number of people in Missouri who are, are dying of fentanyl overdoses. Uh, some time ago, we had the attorney general of Montana on and he talked about the subsequent effect from people who are dying or ending up in jail or you know, on the streets from this substance, and now you having their foster care system be overrun. So I think people underestimate the enormous societal impact of every one of those deaths and every addict that's being created by this uncontrolled border.
2: Oh, you're, you, that's a great point. And you're 100% right. Because when you look at a lot of the laws that are broken, even if it's just burglary and theft, a lot of times it's just drug, drug seekers and drug users who are trying to. Basically, finance their habit. um, And they'll
3: do it through whatever means they can. I want to give. So I looked this up. I was thinking this morning as I read the numbers from the Missouri Department of Health about in 21, 1,581 folks in Missouri passed away from an opiate fentanyl overdose. There was a study. So I said, How many people does this affect? And so I looked it up, and there was a study in 2019 that found 135 people are affected by some degree by every person lost by suicide. I would almost say these overdoses are sort of a suicide of sorts. That means in Missouri, 213,000 people have been affected. I mean, this is, this is just soul-crushing. And you as a man who are dedicated to your faith, mm-hmm. it just—I mean, the anguish for these folks is just unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Man, I, I appreciate those numbers. I'll have to remember those though. That really hit. Some two hundred thousand people is the population of, of the city of Springfield that I grew up in, third largest city. And it, you know, when you put it in perspective, it's just devastating. Yeah, I mean, the other, just the tears. Also, also devastating. Our entire state of Missouri population is is six million people, and we've had nearly six million people, in, just under Biden's watch, migrate across our southern border, Ugh. which is just appalling. You it... could populate our entire state. Well, it can't
3: continue. We had Marco Rubio on a couple of weeks ago, and he was just saying, you know what, there's at least 200 million people in the world who want to immigrate to the United States? We can't do it. I mean, we don't blame them, yeah. but we can't do it. So let's move on to another topic. You're on the Oversight Committee. Um, it's interesting to watch the media... Um, do somersaults, spinning justifications for the Hunter Biden money from China. They they are leading a
1: mass spin uh, class you know, out of and New look, York right and now. And look,
3: we all know when people leave office, a lot of people make money upon their connections. This is this has happened forever. The Bidens did not create it, right? But there's something that there's there's smoke. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's something wrong here. What are you going to look at on oversight to try to figure out what's going on? Besides the fact that he just uses dad's name.
2: Right. Well, I think we need to, we just need to follow the money and continue to follow the money. And and I think that like, the fact that we now know that this Robinson Walker LLC got $3 million from a Chinese energy company. And then within days, actually the next day, they wired $1,065,000 to a company that is associated with James Gillier, who is connected, also connected to the Bidens. And then James Gillier, forwarded that 1065000 exactly in payments over a three-month period to Hunter Biden, James Biden, Ali Biden, and an, another unknown Biden member all during that period. So you can't tell me something is not – there's not some money laundering or something happening. And we, we owe it to the American people. We may have the first time in American history a president who is actually accepting bribes.
1: C- Congressman, right. is there any evidence that any of those named Biden family members actually have expertise in the area of commerce that they're theoretically <laughs> being paid for?
2: Right. Or energy policy or anything like that. Yeah, I doubt it. I don't.
3: Uh, I, I I think this and this is also something that happens. Look, we all sides do things that look hypocritical. But this is simply if this role was reversed, I'm not going to use Trump. If this was family members of McCain Bush, George Bush, yeah. the press would be on this front page New York Times, Washington Post daily for years. I right. mean, that's the hypocrisy of this.
2: Right. I mean, they and the thing is, like, they accused Trump of everything the Biden family has actually been doing. Right. That's exactly. So you have Hunter Biden that was connected with Burisma, receiving money from Ukraine being investigated for corruption and yet it's, but Donald Trump is the one that we're going to impeach because he's actually pointing at where the fire occurs and trying to get the press to do their job. Part of this is a lot of this is because we have got really a press and not you guys, but you know, the mainstream media is not doing their job. They, they owe it to the American people to investigate corruption, no matter which party is doing it. And when they're not doing their job, that the entire fabric of the United States suffers.
3: Exactly. And it's it's an important role. And they need to do it for both sides. But they are clearly not on that mission. It's one side, one side only. And it has to stop. What else are you folks looking at on oversight? How are you liking the committee? What do you what are you seeing that concerns you there?
2: You know, it has been, it's been my, my favorite committee to serve on. It's where a lot of the action is. We get to, we have, the, we're the investigative arm of Congress. So we get to investigate anything that the federal government touches. Uh, the first month in, on the committee, we investigated Twitter and all of the, you know, the the banning, and the shadow banning mm-hmm. and the blocking of accounts, um, conservative media accounts on Twitter. And that was that was great. We investigated the border situation, we brought in border chiefs and we were able to determine that, yes, they are, you know, the Biden administration is not following the law. Uh, Mayorkas is blatantly ignoring federal law and he deserves to be impeached.
3: Yeah, he so, does. Yeah, he, a, yeah, he does. He absolutely does. Um You um, have started a podcast. We have two minutes left here in this segment, but you started a new podcast called Fresh Freedom Podcast through the eyes of four freshman members of Congress. Tell us, our audience, a little bit about it, where they can find it.
2: So it's through the eyes, and it's on Apple Podcasts. It's on all the Spotify and everything. It's Fresh Freedom, and it's through the eyes of five freshman members uh, that are freedom-oriented members, all very conservative, Uh, myself, Anna Polina Luna, Eli Crane from Arizona, uh, Josh Burkeen from Oklahoma, and Andy Ogles from Tennessee. And it's our perspective as freshmen coming in. You know, we've not been corrupted by the D.C. swamp. And so it's it's a way for us to kind of stick together in this, and hopefully listeners will tune in and encourage us along the way.
1: I, I, I love that, Congressman, because one of the things that we've also talked about on this show is that Folks have to stay on top of their members when they get to D.C. It's too easy to go swamp, isn't it? There's a there's a never ending buffet of enticements to roll over for the establishment.
2: Yeah, they immediately when you get there, they start hanging out all these uh, things like committee. Oh, don't you want to be a committee chair someday? And it's all false promises and illusions to kind of get in line and join the swamp. But uh, that's not why I ran for Congress and I. And I certainly want to keep
1: it that way. Fantastic. We're going to be coming right back with more from Congressman Eric Burleson of Missouri's 7th Congressional District here in just a moment. But, folks, make sure you go to our website at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also find us on Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you like to get your favorite podcast. Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Hey, folks. Are you concerned about stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? What if you could earn and invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or call them at 888-Y-REFI-24 and make sure you get your opportunity to earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's investrefy.com or call them at 888-Y-REFI-24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Um, Congressman, I want to go back uh, just as
3: we ended the last segment about being in D.C. and your new podcast. You have started with fellow Freedom Caucus members. Um, You know, we are who we associate with, Right. Um and you know, people you associate with determine a lot where you're going in life. And you know this.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You go back there and you talk about getting corrupted, and I think it's easy to do saying, well, this is how it this is how it goes. It's sort of like bada bing, bada bing, right? What do you do to keep true to your principles, but at the same time realize you do have to go and get to know folks on the other side because at the end of the day, you need to work together to some degree. How do you balance both those?
2: I appreciate that question. Um, To me, you got to be rooted in your faith from the beginning, Uh, because if you're not deeply rooted, you're going to get blown around like a tumbleweed. And for me, my personal faith and and the belief that Jesus is my Savior, it kind of gives you a a broader and a bigger perspective, because you realize we're only here for a blip on this planet. And no matter what title you have is really not that important in the grand scheme of things, because you're going to serve, you know, eternity with your creator. And I want to be proud of what I did and not ashamed of what I did with, with the things that I was given responsibility over. If that gives, and, and then to keep accountable, I put, I try to keep myself around other Christian brothers and sisters, try to stay in a small group Bible study back home. Um, and then stick, and as far as politically, stick around the conservative members that are in Congress, right? So we kind of fight each other, and that's why this Fresh Freedom podcast is, you know, five of us freshmen that kind of found each other.
1: That's fantastic, Congressman. One of the things that you did uh, before uh, running for Congress was was help lead and pass a law called SEPA in Missouri. Can you tell people what that is? Because I think it's really important, and frankly, every state needs to copy that model.
2: Thank you. Yes, yeah, it stands for the Second Amendment Preservation Act. And it, in essence, you know, if you think about all the states that are, quote-unquote, legalizing marijuana, they're not, they're not upending federal law. They're just simply passing laws that say our local law enforcement is not going to spend their resources enforcing it. And I, my, I thought, let's take a page from the left. And when Joe Biden is trying to pass all these rules to grab up pistol braces or AR-15s, I don't want my local law enforcement or state law enforcement to to lift a finger to help him violate the Constitution and the Second Amendment. So that's what SAFE did. It said the state of Missouri, not a single state law enforcement official can help Joe Biden in, or help any federal uh, government enforce federal firearms laws that are not on the books in, in the state of Missouri. So if it's if it's legal in Missouri, they can't help them. But if it's illegal in Missouri, then they can work with federal law enforcement, which just, just makes common sense, right? Right. And
3: well, that's Joe the-
2: Biden sued it. Yeah, Joe Biden sued the bill because, I mean, he threw the Department of Justice at it. They took it to the courts, uh, an a. a District level court judge struck it down, and now it's being appealed at the appellate level. And our attorney general Andrew Bailey plans to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if he has to.
3: You served in the state legislature in Missouri since 2009. What have you found the difference to be serving in a state legislature where you have a solid, solid majority versus working in Congress now? That our folks should understand the the differences.
2: I'm still getting to know the the differences a little bit, um, but some of the early things that you pick up immediately are the change, the differences in the rules, and the way things are governed. You know, like whenever I got up there, Josh Burkeen and I both served as state senators. He from Oklahoma, me from Missouri, and we both agreed that the fact that the way that especially the rules operated under Nancy Pelosi were absolutely nuts. She could bring a bill forward that no one's ever read, have it go through the rules committee, which is a committee just before things hit the floor, and then they would lock down a bill to where there would be no amendments possible, and it was an up or down vote. And sometimes they would bring forward bills to the floor and vote them just simple by simply by a voice when they know no one's in the room and pass bills that spent you know millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars with no one on record for having voted yes or no for any of this, these changes in legislation. And to me, that is, that's is—that's why we have a swamp. That is absolutely insane. It is insane. And, I think that, and so that's why when we came in, one of the things I was really glad we were able to push for is changes to the rules. And I think that we had this unique opportunity where, with McCarthy when we were able to get those rule changes and roll things back to the way they used to be decades ago.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's anybody left or right in this country who thinks that what you just described is good governance under any circumstance. I mean, I, I, I fail to see how anybody could accept that as the way things should be done.
4: Yeah, 100
1: percent.
3: Is that, is that something oversight could have hearings on? I mean, I, I think that's really you know, important. I mean, bring it up saying this is what happened. Do you think this is the way Washington should function?
2: That would be an interesting concept. Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure they could. That they have oversight over everything. So I know that for, there's a lot of uh, James Comer is being pulled in a lot of different directions because there's so much accountability uh, that needs to be done on the Biden administration.
1: Congressman, we have just about a minute and a half before we go to break. But one of the things I see in your bio is that you and your wife Angie are active in supporting campus ministries. Can you tell us just real quickly a little bit about that? Because that has to be one of the toughest things for kids today is to actually declare their faith on a college campus.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly why we did it. You know, in college, I was I was actively involved in Baptist Student Union and then Campus Crusade for Christ, and just saw that the, there's a huge impact. A lot of times, students are kind of get kind of lost in those years, and they need they need something, and and I found that. In my opinion, still to this day, I think campus ministries have probably the biggest impact, um, probably a bigger impact than a lot of our churches do.
1: Fantastic. Congressman, how can folks stay in touch with you and your work? Obviously, we encourage them to go uh, download the and subscribe to the Fresh Freedom podcast, but how else can they stay up uh, with everything you're doing?
2: Yeah, I'm on all the social medias. Um Uh, as Eric Burleson, spelled with a B-U-R-L-I-S-O-N. And so I try to do everything I can to keep people up to date on those tools. And just appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, guys.
3: Well, thank you. We look forward to it. We hope your podcast is a big success. we love to have your other members of the podcast on our show. We had Eli Crane a couple weeks ago. But we appreciate what you're
1: doing, and keep up the good fight.
2: Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend.
1: You too. Fantastic breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. On the line with us next... John Levine, political reporter for the Sunday New York Post. His work covers city, state, and national politics. And frankly, folks, he's doing fantastic work. If you're not following him, you need to be. John, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you both for having me.
1: So let's talk about um,
3: Hunter Biden. Um, Yeah, man in
5: the
3: news. The man in the news, continues to be in the news. What do you see happening on this?
5: Well... There's like a lot of different storylines playing out at once. And we, I, the, the short answer is we, we can't know for sure which one is going to be the one that wins out. It's almost like that Price is Right game, Plinko, where the ball is going down and it can go in a lot of different places. <laughs> you've, got, you've got the – first of all, you've got the, um, the federal investigation out of Delaware by the Department of Justice. That's still ongoing. And he could be charged with one or multiple crimes from there at any time. You may recall that probe is being led by David Weiss, who is a Trump appointee. You may recall a slew of articles before the election and immediately after the midterms talking about how that investigation was nearing a conclusion or is at a tipping point and a lot of these cloak and dagger leaks from the DOJ. But then we still haven't seen any result yet. But that's relevant because if the DOJ moves to prosecute Hunter for anything, That will step on the House Oversight Committee's investigation, and that will close off, for legal reasons, a lot of avenues they have to pursue Hunter. So actually, the House Oversight Committee doesn't really want to see charges filed against Hunter, at least not yet,
6: because
5: they're doing their own probe. And by the way, that probe is slowly, and I can't emphasize that word enough, slowly moving forward. You know, we, we they've just got access to these suspicious activity reports that Hunter Biden and his family have generated one hundred and fifty of. And by the way, I don't you know, if, if you're not familiar with banking, suspicious activity reports are generated by banks by law when they see, as the term says, suspicious activity. Y- you do not get these willy nilly. These are for combating terrorism, financing, human trafficking, money laundering. You know, it's the real nasty stuff. You and I and most humans listening to your show will probably go their whole lives without getting one suspicious activity report. For Hunter Biden and his family to have 150 or more than that is, is stupendous. That is a stupendous and crazy figure. And you can talk to any banking expert, and they will confirm that. And the House Oversight Committee has been trying to get at these. The Treasury is blocking them, even though it's their right. They've subpoenaed them. They're in the majority They finally got access this week, and they're currently reviewing them. And, you know, they're being very tight about it. I I, I can't tell you what's in these yet. If this was Adam Schiff, they would have already been delivered on a silver platter to the New York Times.
1: Correct. Correct. Right. (laughs) How much, too, should should the House Oversight Committee be looking at why none of this came to light via the DOJ or via – Uh, you know, any of the financial institutions that are supposed to be watching over this, the oversight, why, why did this take a congressional oversight committee? Why didn't it come out in the course of normal business?
5: Well, the course of normal business was decided by Democrats until a few weeks ago. And there was just no, there certainly was no teeth or interest among Democrats in the oversight committee to do anything with this, even now the minority now that they're in the minority you have ranking members like Jamie Raskin who every time he opens his mouth he keeps saying oh this is no big deal it's just it's just receipts for pizza hut you know, and Blockbuster. Right. <laughs> and Starbucks. <laughs> That's, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, we, we just saw the other day that the, the multiple Biden family members received north of a million dollars in 2017 from a Chinese company. It's not the, Starbucks and, and pizza rolls.
1: That, that is a heck of a Blockbuster bill. You've had that video out for a while.
3: We've got about a minute, 45 seconds left of this break. Let me ask you a quick question. So people leave office all the time and take advantage of the relationships they've made. What makes this different? from other examples, from getting paid a lot of money for a speech or something? What makes this different?
5: I mean, what makes this different is that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. And if you have Hunter Biden in, you know, in a a financial relationship with major Chinese companies, and you have potentially that relationship going over to Joe Biden during the period when he was out of office, when he was between his vice presidency and his presidency, which is when a lot of the most uh, suspicious activity occurred after he left the vice president's office, you have a situation. What James Comer, head of the oversight committee always says is this is not an investigation of Hunter Biden. It's an investigation of Joe Biden and whether Joe Biden in his role as president of the United States is compromised because of his son's ex- his ex- because of his relationship to his son and his son's business dealing. That's the root of it. That's the nut.
1: Well, and, and- Democrats keep trying to play this off. We we have just about thirty seconds before we're going to break, but Democrats keep trying to play this off as it, like you said, it's not about important things, or at worst, it's about hunters' uh, promiscu- promiscuity. Uh, for lack of a better word, we're on a Christian radio station, so I don't want to go That's much a pretty further. Good word. Yeah. Um, but, but this is a really far-reaching thing that has enormous global impact, and folks need to be tuned into this going forward. We're going to be coming right back here with more from John Levine of the Sunday New York Post uh, in just a moment. But folks, make sure you're tuning in, downloading. Go to BreakingBattlegrounds.Vote. You can get all of our past episodes. For Chuck Warren, I'm Sam Stone, and we'll be right back.
4: You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor cost less. <laughs>
3: Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren of Sam Stone. Um, we're very excited to have with us John Levine of the New York Post. Or David Levine, mean, sorry about that. Um, John, sorry, good grief. Sorry, John, John. Sorry, John, but we're going to give you the name David, too, as well today. I don't know why I had written down David here. Um, John, um, so Hunter Biden today announced he's suing the computer repair shop. Is this just good legal strategy on their part to do this, to sort of obfuscate what's going on and go on the attack?
5: I mean, it's a public relations strategy, and yeah. maybe it's a good PR strategy, but actually it's a terrible legal strategy because, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with litigation, there's something that happens in litigation. It's called discovery if you get far enough down the pipe, and that's where both sides have to turn over their phones and their emails and their documents, you know, to look at for relevant information to the case. Now, you know, if you're asking me who's got a lot more to lose, turning over their information it's not the computer repairman
3: (laughs) (laughs) exactly the
5: son of the president and do you think we're gonna do you really think we're gonna have full-blown hunter biden discovery in the middle of a 2024 re-election campaign of his father that's and that's that is where this would go if the lawsuit were to continue Uh, so i think from a legal standpoint i don't i have a hard time thinking father biden is going to just let that happen
1: you know I I almost wonder because politicians have gotten frankly very casual about ignoring FOIA um, if they don't understand how much more dangerous this is when you're talking about a court which can subpoena records directly from the telecom companies
5: right wait, but wait, what's your question
1: uh, I, I'm just saying that that this seems like something where they're they're running a risk of disclosure that may reach much further than they an, actually anticipate
5: oh yeah I mean that again I don't well, it's interesting because Hunter's actually being sued by the repairman. So, in a sense, you can't like he just filed a countersuit, which, I, you know, I don't know. It's I guess you know maybe it's that's an intimidation tactic, but you know, President Biden won't be able to shut down the computer repairman, John Paul Mac Isaacs lawsuit, and that's been going on since 2019, and. There's a universe where, as I said earlier, that you could get into discovery there during a presidential campaign, and you'll get new messages and emails between Joe and and Hunter. And, you know, there is a, there's a massive, massive possibility of major escalations of this story should that lawsuit continue.
3: Um, let's quickly switch gears here and go to Donald Trump. It sounds like New York may be indicting him. What can you tell our audience about it, and what do you think really happens?
5: Well, you know, we have a very... We're versus a very political town, New York City yes. and New York State. You know, we have an attorney general and Leticia James who openly campaigned. It's an elected position. She openly campaigned on uh, putting Trump in jail and indicting him. That was a campaign promise. So, you know, obviously after she is reelected, that's something for her office to deliver on. They indicted his company, ultimately, not him. And the company actually uh, was had to plead guilty, and uh, I think their CFO— 75 year old man, they got him for like taking a company car and not reporting it and, Correct. And, and living in a Trump apartment and not basically not reporting, you know, frill perks that he received on the job. I Which,
1: actually the way, didn't realize it was that minor. Yeah, for no, what they no. Got That's what for. it was ridiculous. for. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And it was,
5: it was, this is stuff, you know, look, if it against the letter of the law, perhaps, but you know what? That so was jaywalking, I, you know, and, and 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 it's very, very common for executives to get these kind of fringe perks in New York City. Correct. So they shoved a 75-year-old man in Rikers Island, uh, which is a very scary jail in New York, um, for five months for, because of this. And and he refused to turn on Trump, you know, because if there's no there there, you can't, but that's what they ultimately were trying to get from him. Uh, and so now we have uh, the uh, the New York City, you know, district attorney pursuing charges. And it, this has to relate, again, it's like payments to the, to the, uh, to Stormy Daniels, uh, for hush money because they had an affair The she was a an uh, adult, exotic dancer and like i, I don't know well I, it seems very probable they will bring charges but also trump has indicated that uh it won't stop him and he will continue his campaign where he remained at least certainly as of today the front
1: runner in a certain sense nominee. if they're publicizing how minor some of this is in this you know in essence pursuing this and it comes to light that these are such minor things that don't really relate directly to Trump. That could actually help him in his reelection, couldn't it?
5: Well, the risk is always overreach. You know, if, if, if it looks like the prosecution is political, you you, you 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 do end up, you give him an enemy to attack. You give him a foil. You say, it's me against this corrupt, deep state that's trying to stop me, but I'm not going to be stopped. You know, they can't keep Nixon down anymore. And <laughs> You, you 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 do run the risk of giving him that sort of pinata to hit as he runs his campaign, but it's never good to be indicted. No, I don't know that we have a modern precedent of a of a major party candidate, the front runner being a former president being indicted and then we, continuing a campaign. We, we don't. But it will happen. Well, we will not stop.
3: And you know, and I'm sure New York City is full of upstanding business people, but how many of them now are checking their banking records? <laughs> 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 have had a possible liaison that a little money exchanged hands.
5: Well, right. I mean, a lot of people here are just checking their banking records to see if they still exist. If their bank is still solvent. Uh, but right. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think that most New Yorkers have to worry about this unless no. they should seek major office as a high-profile Republican.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're with John Levine. He writes about politics and culture at the New York Post. You can follow him on Twitter, which we highly recommend, at Levine Jonathan. Um, okay. So you write about culture. Let's talk culture. From, let's get off politics. From, this is depressing. Culture. What are some cultural things you're following right now that you find interesting?
5: Well, you know, New York City is currently consumed by this phenomena called drag queen story hour.
3: I think every and state is.
5: Yeah. It's, it's become like a national issue, which, to be honest, I feel like we have bigger problems in life than a, drag queen a smidge, story A smidge.
3: A smidge. A smidge. Yeah. We have a smidge more yeah, of problems. Like,
5: isn't China sending five balloons? But anyway, <laughs> um, Look, it's a thing, and we have a nonprofit in New York, and they their thing is that they like to send drag queens to talk, to to read books, children's books, to to little children in the libraries and in the public schools. And now, you know, it's tough because in principle, this strikes me as a parent's right issue. You're a parent; you want to take your kid to hear a drag queen read a story, right? You know, whatever. But you have in New York a lot of these. This nonprofit and a lot of these events are happening at public institutions and are publicly financed. So now you have the taxpayers of New York City, me, and everyone else here subsidizing what is essentially, you know, it's certainly a lot of very strong opinions on whether the on the appropriateness of a program like this, and that is currently convulsing. We're going to have libs of TikTok. We're doing a massive drag queen story hour. It's happening with Letitia James, our attorney general, is doing it in. In, in, in downtown Manhattan on Sunday, and Libs of TikTok is going to have like a counter protest in in Midtown, a few blocks away. And it's you know it's, she's going to read her book to children. and We're, we're having dueling story times in New York on Sunday.
3: Isn't it, I'm old enough. When you had sex education come to school, you had to have a written authorization from the parent. Can't we just apply something like that to this? That the kid come in, they have the written authorization of a parent.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, when it's happening in like a public library, right, right. If a parent brings their kid, that is like a you know,
3: that's a bad though. thing. Yeah, the,
5: the it's the bigger issue is when it's happening in schools and parents don't know about it.
3: Right, in correct. A school
5: library, correct. And yeah, I mean, it's never you're you will never go wrong including parents in the conversation about what their children should and shouldn't be exposed. So,
3: but I don't believe teacher unions believe that anymore. I don't think the parents. Well, they think definitely pa- don't. I mean, that's the problem no. with teachers' unions yeah. more than anything. I mean, they right, just yeah. simply don't believe in parental involvement. They think it's dangerous.
5: Right. Right. Exactly. The further they can keep parents away from what from what's going on in schools, the better. It is because you know a, a bill that they fought tremendously hard against. I believe it was in Florida is a curriculum transparency bill, which is where parents have a right to see you know the whole curriculum online, every book, every lecture, every everything, and it, it is it is without question very suspicious. You know, I can't answer why, but right. there is certainly a concerted effort to keep parents out of the conversation by public school administrators and teachers' unions, and it's curious,
1: John. I can say. One of the things that we've seen with this is is the counter from the left has been to you know share a bunch of photos of, of mostly fathers who took their sons to Hooters, um, but aren't they essentially making the point that many Republicans are 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 trying to get out right there that. Hey, if parents are making that decision for their kids and for their family, that's one thing. But it's entirely something else when that decision is being made for them and often without their consent.
5: Right. You can argue, and I think probably with some justification, you shouldn't be taking young children to Hooters. I, I would agree. Uh,
3: Correct. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. But the big question becomes, Hooters is not a publicly financed company. Hooters does not receive tax money, as far as I know. Um, Hooters is not a... Non-profit. Well,
1: not, not directly. <laughs>
5: <laughs> right. Not directly. You know, it, it's <laughs> and when Hooters starts receiving tax money, that's when we can reopen that conversation.
3: John, John, talking about culture, you live in New York. You, you have some opinions that are contrary to a lot of New Yorkers. How does, do you feel like you're on a no man's land out in New York at times?
5: Yes and no. Like you. I know what you're thinking. And the answer is, yes, you are correct about that. But New York is also much bigger. Correct. than the loudest voices we have here. And, and and so much of our conversation here is dominated by the loudest voices and just large blocks of apathetic people. But if you go out into more of the outer boroughs, the Queens and the Brooklyn and further out, and you actually, because most people aren't thinking about drag queen story art. Most people have, like, live
3: Real problems. That they have to, and real problems. Right. Yeah,
5: Right. It, you know, it's, I, I can't fault someone for not thinking about that very often. But when you actually drill down onto that issue and you talk to them and you say, well, "What do you think of this and this and this?" It's it's like overwhelming people when they're actually forced to confront an idea. They're like, they say, "Well, well, that's crazy," and it's there's just not there's there's a lot of apathy, unfortunately. But I think actually there's a I'll, you know, to use a loaded term there's a there is a real silent majority of New Yorkers out there who, when they are pressed to understand this stuff and they and it, and they're forced to confront it, they actually do are much more reasonable and far more amenable to probably what a lot of your uh, listeners in Florida and elsewhere might, might
3: think. Well, common sense still rules for a lot of people. And so my question to you, we have a little less than two minutes left here, is how do we shake people out of that apathy? Because I think you're right. You know, um, I have actually lots of conservative friends in New York, I, and so I'm trying to think what shakes them out of their right. apathy to get involved more, to have a government that reflects what they believe, you know, law and order, for example. You know, I mean, it's just it's seemed very well cared for. Her. Yeah.
5: And, you know, I know that in New York City, we got Rudy Giuliani. He won in 1992. You know, voters were shaken out of the apathy, But that took like twenty five hundred murders a year. To get to that, that's that's where it had to go. And Giuliani won that race by two points
1: close, close race. That that came at the end of a horrible decade-long decline.
5: Right, It took a decade. So uh, unfortunately, you know, people get snapped out of apathy only when the conditions around them kind of force them to pay attention. And so I don't know that necessarily Drag Queen Story Hour is going to be an issue that really snaps anyone out of their apathy, but that's, you know, law and order and crime issues are, are a major, major concern going on here, and it has awoken a lot of people to things they didn't previously think about.
1: John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. How do folks follow you and your work and stay in tune with everything you're doing?
5: I can be found on Twitter at Levine, like Adam Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N.
1: Perfect. And folks, all follow me. Yeah, <laughs> please, please get on there and follow him. Uh, Jonathan Levine, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on the program and look forward to having you back again in the future.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: All right, Chuck. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm still worried about my portfolio. You need good investments that can provide a steady income. And why refi is that? Exactly. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. It's a fantastic opportunity to secure your financial future. It doesn't require checking the stock market each morning and panic during Joe Biden's administration. And there's an opportunity, if you want to, to take money from your retirement account and be able to invest tax-free, or tax-deferred, pardon me, tax-deferred. This is a fantastic opportunity, and one both Chuck and I recommend. Folks, go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI24, and make sure you tell them Chuck and Sam sent you be sure to tune in for the podcast only segment of breaking battlegrounds we have some fantastic stuff there for you today and as always thank you for tuning in
3: Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host Chuck Warren with Sam Stone. Today we have friend of the show David Katniz on. Um, he's a political writer for McClatchy and also we recommend we have subscribe to his Substack account Too Close to Call. There he has a podcast and writes his musings and David's one of these great objective journalists that there's not many of anymore on either side. So David thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thanks for having me. Hopefully, I can uh, live up to the
3: intro. Well, of course. You, uh, we talked to your mom before, so we're ready. We're prepping well, right we're, here. we're going straight into <laughs> Goolville here, so I think this is going to be fantastic. Yeah. David, we're, yeah. D- David <laughs> recently, on his Substack account, did a podcast on Too Close to Call about he was recently asked to write a preliminary obituary on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, David, let me play this clip here from the old TV show Dirty Walk. Um, go ahead, Jeremy.
6: Tracy Jordan, star of the fact movies, was also voted worst representation of a black man nine years in a row. Perhaps best known for his FCC fines. Diabetes. Thank God I didn't anybody, and thank God it. Was. And giving the Queen Parvo. This is terrible. When I'm dead, that's what I leave behind. That's how my grandkids will remember me as they fly around in their jetpacks. Well, it's not fair out of context. Her Highness was sending signals. It doesn't matter. That's how the world sees me, as some idiot millionaire. Who? Mark Cuban? That guy ran me over with a
0: jet ski. What is he so upset about? It's my fault.
6: I let Mr. Jordan see his obituary. He's dying? Fine. I'll sing at his funeral. No, ma'am. NBC News makes celebrity obituaries ahead of time. Typical liberal media. They do? Well, then I need to see mine. If they
0: used any of the footage from my shoplifting arrest, that would be great because my arms looked fantastic.
3: So, David, you were called recently when um, Minority Leader McConnell fell, got a concussion, um, and were asked to preliminarily write a obituary. Tell us about the experience.
4: So, I think most people can relate to this. If you ever get in a very early morning Text message or phone call, it irks you. But in this instance, <laughs> Mitch McConnell, uh, I was still in bed when I got this message. It was that early in the morning, um, but I kind of knew it was coming because the night before the statement went out, a midnight statement. Anytime a, a, as an office puts out a midnight statement, you know that's a problem. And Mitch McConnell fell. And I knew that was going to be my story the next day, giving I cover, you know, my congressional leadership from McClatchy newspapers. So the text message early in the morning, the next morning was like, hey, obviously, can you see what you can find out about his condition? But uh, more importantly, drop everything else you're working on and start compiling the obituary, which is pretty standard in media. But it, I've never done so it was like, OK, wow, I got to comb through this guy's he's almost had 40 years of life. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up old obituaries of other big figures and trying to get a sense of, you know, of, of writers that I admire. And that's that's sort of what I spent my day doing. And at the same time, hitting my sources to see is McConnell all right, Is going to be <laughs> right. OK. And, There was a lot of uncertainty around that because McConnell's office is tightly lipped. They don't they don't they put out two lines on it. It was just he was in the hospital. He had fallen. Now, did he fall down the stairs? Did he slip and hit his head? Did he break a hip? Like we didn't know. So those are the type of details you're trying to scour for and trying to get while you have this enormous task of, you know, trying to remember someone if they were to pass.
1: Does it does it seem like maybe we need a law to replace all staircases with escalators? Because members of Congress and the president seem to be struggling with this right now.
4: I mean, like these guys are in their eighties, yeah. So you know, like they're all in their eighties. So it doesn't, or on the cusp of it. So you know, and when, when injuries at your eighties. I mean, if I fall down today, you know, hopefully I survive. You know, maybe I have a broken arm, but we all know that injuries when you're older take a much bigger toll. So you have to take these things seriously. I mean, stranger things happen. It looks like in McConnell's case, he is recovering. Uh, he's got a fractured hip. but Like they said, it was minor. But again, I'm just inherently skeptical of the office putting out the medical reads of anyone, of any president. But, you know, well, it's been in the, in the most positive light. Possible. Sure. And, sure. And there's
1: no such thing as a fractured hip, a yeah. uh, minor fractured hip for someone at that age. That's
3: it. That's a right. gr- that's a great segue to John Fetterman. OK, <laughs> I know right. you've right.
1: covered it some. Um,
3: Look, I mean, you, you take what he's gone through seriously. I don't wish that upon anybody from the stroke to the depression he's battling. And we all know people battle depression as a very dark place, not only for the person experiencing it, but for those who love them. Um, but, you know, they're saying now he's going to be there another two weeks. Um, there's a lot on the right, even independents who just feel the media's whitewashed his health crisis. W- what do you see? You've covered it. What Tell us about it.
4: Well, I would, you know, I wrote on. My too close to call substack that compassion requires grace, but it should not suspend reason. And my lens on this was to be compassionate about the guy's health. I mean, depression is something that millions of Americans struggle with. I think, you know, some of these people on the right that are taking shots at him for that, I think that's,
3: that's four, four. callous, but I think yeah. it's
4: also politically stupid. Right. The, the real question to ask is. Like, can he do the job? Is he able to read? Is he able to have conversations? I mean, we just don't know the extent of his cognitive ability. And this was prior to really the admission of clinical depression. He was still recovering and struggling with speech just from the stroke. I mean, prior to the admission of clinical depression, he was at an event in Pennsylvania with the president. It had real trouble getting through it. It didn't get much media coverage because, you know, he, he, he won and, like, people are now not focused on Fetterman as much. But, I mean, it was still very visible. And then you talk to experts and the clinical depression can take years to recover from. This is a six-year term. He just began it. I mean, obviously, Democrats don't want to deal with this because their their majority is so, so frail. But I think it's a real... If this goes on now, if he's back in two weeks, and this is what I lay out in in my post, if he's back in two weeks and is showing signs of progression, I think, okay, that's one thing. But I suspect that this is going to be a much longer recovery and that this is not going to go away. And I think six to nine to ten months from now, that's when you're going to start to see, well, I think it will matter more in Pennsylvania to to his own constituents to say, wait, can he really do this or do we do we need to think about a replacement?
1: Is is there kind of a deadline maybe with the the 24 election? I mean, is is that something that I I mean, that sort of makes sense if you're going to at some point have to replace him?
4: Right. It's up to the governor. I mean, the governor would would make the replacement, but then there would it would trigger a special election. Usually. And, and what I mean, what governors in other states have done is try to pair it with an existing election because elections cost a lot of money to run, right? I mean, they don't want to run a, just an election by itself, so they would pair it with some other election, and maybe it would be the 2024 election, which is not what I mean. You already have another Senate race in Pennsylvania that in 2024 Bob Casey is running for reelection and is up there, and that's the seat Republicans will try to try to go after i mean imagine if you had two pennsylvania senate races in 2024 um which is compound problems for for democrats so i just i i don't think i mean it's a touchy issue but i mean politics aside i mean this guy isn't a private citizen he is a public figure and and one of a hundred senators which is very important in a senate that's divided by one a single seat
3: we're with David Katniss. He is the political writer for McClatchy News Services. He also has a great Substack account called Too Close to Call, where he writes on various things and has a podcast. Um, the one thing I, I want to move into another topic, that I'm not sure he would still be in office 30 years ago when political parties actually had some influence on elections. McCain-Feingold basically. No lack of a better word castrated them, And I'm pretty sure, because, look, yeah, they would have to do a new election in 24, but they're going to replace them with a Democrat right now. You still have 18 months. Right. And right. that's, to me, is the height of the responsibility. So let's take all of our political jockeying and put it aside. The end of the day is, look, your health matters, your family matters. We're going to replace you, and we're going to replace you with a Democrat. And in all likelihood? Pretty good odds that Democrats can get reelected in twenty four.
1: And right now, Pennsylvania is missing half of its representation in the Senate. Well,
3: let's let's talk about something that's really fun. And I think David will probably be talking to you about this throughout the summer. Um, Silicon Valley Bank's demise. Boy, that's Um, all the fun, Chuck. You know, it's interesting. So, (laughs) um, yeah, it's well, it's fun because I, I heard a great quote I was telling Sam about this week where a guy said, this is the first bank failure started by a group text chat. Um, And, you know, you look at it, they had, at First Republic, two-thirds of their deposits were over the $250,000 insured FDIC. Silicon Valley is 90%. Zions Bank in Utah, which is a good bank, been there for years, their stock has fallen. Their uninsured deposits are only 47%. How does this stop? It seems to be... it, it, it just – this seems to be also a perception thing more than a reality thing in a lot of ways.
4: Well, I'm not an economist, but I have read a ton on this since this collapse and listened to a ton of podcasts. And I've learned a lot in the last week on this because I think it's really important. Yes. One argument that is starting to develop is to get rid of regional banks, that the United States is unique in that we have so many banks. Most countries in the rest of the world have about two to three to four banks. They do most of the banking. And then there's like a couple, few smaller ones. We have dozens and dozens of these regional banks. And there's an argument that that they're not as well supervised, part because of the rollback in 2018 of Dodd-Frank, and that really, we have created in this country that large banks that are too big to fail, but in, in some instances, that's important. I mean, too big to fail, sort of got a bad rap, right, for the financial crisis, that we bailed out the big banks because they have to be there, because these guys can do whatever they want, but they're too important for the country to let them go down. But in this instance, if, you know, Silicon Valley's function of providing loans to basically tech guys – And uh, if they were part of a larger bank, it would have never happened. And that's, I think, some of the argument that you're starting to hear. This is starting to divide very interestingly. I think the one takeaway is that from both parties is that this is mainly the fault of the management of the bank. Now you're getting you're getting some partisan arguments about was it Trump's fault? Was it, you know. Who's who was it? Biden? Did Biden? You know, was it his overseers that didn't do it? Was it Trump's rollbacks of regulations in 2018? And that's going to be depending on your political perspective. People get partisan, but everything and every writing that I've read is that the agreement was like this bank screwed up.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, putting, did, all, the, putting all their I mean, on there's back. no one on the board that really had banking experience. I mean, it's, you know. Where are the adults in the room? Yeah, there's, I mean, that's the one thing that's, there's a, several things that stood out to me. So, uh, you know, as you know, both Sam are conservative. I'm not falling for the whole woke argument. Yeah, they were into it, but that's not the reason for this failure. The failure was as financial to be, management. Yeah, they didn't hedge their bets, hedge their risks. Right. They dead bat I me. Mean, no one's on the board who runs a bank. I mean, there is, you know, look. But where I, was the
4: oversight? It's well, exactly. So, to be, to so this looking is. At
3: that. So, so here's what you're going to happen.
1: Regulators
3: failed and conquerors and say we need more regulation.
1: No, but, <laughs> but, but also, not only regulators failed, but investors in this yeah, bank failed. Yeah, yeah, no, but so, but but this is a regulation, regulatory failure, and they're going to demand more regulations.
3: And, and dismiss the regulations they failed to do. Interesting. You mentioned how many banks there are. There are four thousand two hundred thirty-six FDIC insured commercial banks in the United States. Wow. With seventy-two thousand one hundred sixty-six commercial bank branches. That's a behemoth. Yeah, are there
4: too many banks?
3: Yeah, no I mean, I don't, yet. I don't know. And then you got credit unions. I don't know. Is that banking is not credit union, So that's not no, even credit unions. Yeah. So y- yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's something has to be looked at.
4: I mean, I just think the amount of regional banks and – I mean, maybe they're – I don't – are they not – there obviously are regulators. Are they too busy to look at these banks? Do they not have enough bandwidth to, like, see what's going on? I mean, what was uh,
3: Moody's doing? Yeah, no, no, exactly. I'm going to double this number. So I just looked up how many credit unions there are. There are 4,853 federally insured credit unions with 132 million members. We're over 8,000 – Basic banking oh, institutions. I, I, I do think you need to, to divide those two. Well, no, they're two credit separate Credit unions things. operate very right, carefully, very, very for differently, the most part. very yeah, differently. Yeah. I mean, you and I moved business to credit unions years ago. Yeah, but but still, that's eight. You know, that's over nine thousand <laughs> institutions. People put money say, in.
4: They would say the reason you need regional banks because the big banks would never lend to the startup. They wouldn't take a risk on like the small entrepreneur trying to get off the ground. The reason you want the mom and pop. Which I don't even think is mom and pop because Silicon Valley Bank was still a big bank. It was just not as big as the big biggest. Um, you know that, that you want these smaller regional banks to like sort of be immersed in the community to support the community, and like Silicon Valley Bank was the tech bank. Like these, this was all like VC tech. I think they had some winery investments too, but it was all you know that was that it's that culture out there. And the thing, I mean, did they just get too? Cocky? Did they get too arrogant as far as what they that's what it seems like. Well, like they, were, they gambled too much.
3: We got two minutes left here, but one of the fallacies of the regional bank is, look, their loaning standards are no different than Chase or Wells Fargo. I own a half a dozen right. businesses. Trust me. The local bank's just a pain in the butt to deal with getting a business loan as a, as a Chase Bank or Wells Fargo. It's just not okay. Just – they're just not as – and Chase and Wells for those guys, you know, the word wokey has been overused, and it's birth- basically worthless in a lot of degrees now. But that's what they are. But there's no difference when you're a small business owner trying to expand between mm-hmm. what the loan requirements are in the banks. It's just sort of ridiculous. So, David, we've got about a minute left here now. What do you think people should be looking for in our country going forward? What are What are some hot spots you see that are just starting to percolate?
4: Well, I mean, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. I mean, the big question I am asking for the next five months is, can Ron DeSantis take a punch? A lot of people are critiquing that he may be socially awkward, that he may be a little odd, he doesn't like people. I don't think that's as important as whether we know he can take a punch from Trump and deliver one back. And that is yet to be determined. And that, I think, is the most important political question of the next
3: half year. Interesting. Um, David Catnies, reporter, friend of the show, go to his Substack, subscribe. He needs some extra money, do some vacations. It's too close to call. David, yeah, look, for- I gotta
4: get to Miami.
3: Exactly, Miami Music Fest. Go do it, buddy. Have enjoy it, and yeah. um, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back. Um, welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds for the final, final segment of our podcast portion. Sam, we had some fantastic guests today. Um, really good. I think Really people, good conversation. And I think if people followed David Cantonese and John Levine more, you'd probably be a little more educated about the world and culture and things of those natures.
1: Well, you know what I like most about those kind of guests on this program is that you get, frankly, a level of honesty from them. They're not part of their you know they each have their own viewpoints but they really don't let that get into their reporting and their writing and their work they try to deliver the news as they see it and as they're they're able to and I think both of them do a fantastic job with that they absolutely do Um,
3: we're gonna play a clip here from Kamala Harris talking about the willow oil project and if you want to start laughing now go ahead folks yeah just prime yourself up go ahead Jeremy
2: was there any discussion in the White House about what the blowback would be for approving the Willow Oil Project? Because people have gotten quite upset about it. I think there's some protesters outside right now. Well, I think that the, the, the concerns are based on what we should all be
0: concerned about. But the the solutions have to be and include what we are doing in terms
6: of going forward, in terms of investments.
2: Was there any dis- She,
3: you know, it's funny this week. The reason I decided to have that clip, there was literally a campaign on Twitter. Now, again, Twitter is not real world, but um, progressives have really spent the money and time. Everybody talks about Russian influence, but just watch progressives spend on it, trying to say what a wonderful communicator she is, that she's being <laughs> <laughs> un- <laughs> un- underestimated. And, you know, folks where you don't know, um, the Will o- Willow Oil projects up in Canada, uh, the Biden administration. Business, Alaska. Alaska, Alaska Alas- I mean. Alaska. Oh, Alaska. Yep. It's getting close to election time. And, you know, and it's, like, it's just sort of like vetoing the D.C. crime bill. Um, Joe Biden's coming more towards a center that everybody was promised he would do. Well, belated delivery, but, but yes. So now you have uh, a cartel of progressives desperately trying to say, well, Kamala Harris, is isn't her fault. This is what the VP jobs like. She's a great communicator. And it's just a lie.
1: Well, it's it's an absolute lie. She may be the single worst communicator who's ever been in that office. The fact that she is unbelievably a worse communicator than Joe Biden, who at this point in his career is not with us half the time, is astounding. It is. It is. Um, Can I say also one thing about that Willow uh, oil patch? That is such a no-brainer. Oh, absolutely. That is such an absolute no-brainer for this country. You're talking an enormous amount of oil in an area where it's easy to extract and get into existing pipelines, requires no additional infrastructure. And it's in an area that was dedicated for that purpose. And even the Alaskan native tribes
3: are, are supportive of it. Of yeah, absolutely. This is just simply, again, a bunch of white progressives in New York and D.C. having a conniption fit about it.
1: Well, in play acting, yeah, which is yeah,
3: mostly yeah. what they seem to do. Crocodile tears. All right. The next clip we're going to play here is Senator Lankford, a friend of the show from Oklahoma, interviewing Secretary of Treasury Yellen About the SVB bailout. Now, listen to this closely. Don't don't stop what you're doing. Listen to what she's saying. Um, This is crony capitalism, my friends, at its best. Go ahead, Jeremy.
6: Start with some of the banking issues we're dealing with on it. Will the deposits in every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of their size, be fully insured now? Are they fully recovered? Every bank, every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of the size of the deposit, Will they get the same treatment that SVBP just got or Signature Bank just got?
0: A bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority, a supermajority of the Fed board, and I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure to protect uninsured depositors would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. So what is your plan?
1: That's a lot of word salad right right there. What is your plan to keep
6: large depositors from moving their funds out of community banks into the big banks? We have seen the mergers of banks over the past decade. I'm concerned you're about to accelerate that by encouraging anyone who has a large deposit in a community bank to say, we're not going to make you whole, but if you go to one of our preferred banks, we will make you whole at that point.
0: Um, look, I mean, we're, uh, that's um, certainly uh. not something that we're encouraging. That is
6: happening right now.
0: That is happening because depositors are concerned about the bank failures that have happened and whether or not other banks could also um, No, it's happening because you're
6: fully insured, no matter what the amount is, if you're in a big bank. You're not fully insured if you're in a community bank. Well,
0: you're not fully insured. And you You were at
6: signature, and it it just barely met that threshold. You were at signature.
0: Well, we felt that there was a serious risk of contagion. We, we, we can stop it right here, Chuck. I mean, this is horrid. Banks. Um,
1: this so this what, is so, horrid.
3: So, what Senator Langford of Oklahoma asked is Will every community bank get the same treatment as Silicon Valley Bank? And her reply was Banks only get the treatment if the failure to protect it uninsured depositors would create a systematic, systemic risk. That's well,
1: it. I mean, so with a majority, so, supermajority of the FDIC, yeah. I mean, yeah. here's the other element to this: the bank that failed, SVB, all their clients pretty much were big Democrat supporting organizations. This is the tech world. Yeah, it's looking more and more like it was safe for political reasons. Yeah, what what if what if that had been a bank that was mostly uh, giving loans to startup oil companies?
3: It, it would that would they not, would have been allowed to go under. It would have gone under. So folks, anyway, pay attention to what's going on here with the banking. It's I know it's a little complicated sometimes. Sam and I are like you. We're not bankers. We're learning as we go along, but spend some time. make sure you're in banks that are si- sound financial health and, and, and folks need to understand. 95% of the banks in the United States are in good financial health. Well, and,
1: and your credit
3: union. We always tell folks your local credit union is a great option. And if you have deposits above 250000 you want to split that and put it in different banks or become a supporter and a um, sponsor of the Breaking Battle Bank. Hey,
1: you can subscribe and be, you know, you can put your name right in front of this <laughs> podcast right here. Anyway, folks, we hope you have a great week. There's a lot going on in the world. Don't get
3: depressed. Get out there. Be active. Love your family. Have a great weekend. Happy St. Paddy's Day.
0: The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from godaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.